Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of a conversation with Dr. Michaela Hempen, in which we consider the question, what is consciousness? What is the mind? And is this something that humans and other animals share? Your answer will very much affect your level of concern over animal welfare. Do we put into effect only those regulations regarding how farm animals are cared for that protect human health? Or do we insist that these animals live in conditions in which they are not just free from suffering, but they can also thrive and enjoy their lives? The answer very much affects how animal welfare is assessed, or even if anyone bothers to consider welfare issues for the animals under human care. The more you move towards positive animal welfare, the more complicated the assessment becomes. How do you measure such abstract qualities contained in the phrase, enjoy their lives. How do you assess in scientific terms, meaning in a way that can be observed and measured, if an animal is happy? We may think our animals are happy, we hope our animals are happy, but how do we actually measure what being happy means? In part three, Michaela considers the current welfare assessments and asks what they are actually measuring. It's often not what is intended. A researcher may want to measure preferences. Do the animals in the study prefer this enclosure with this type of bedding or this other enclosure with a different type? In a Y test, meaning the animals can turn to the left or to the right, it can look as though the animals are preferring whatever option is, let's say, to the left. But when you tease apart how the animals were introduced to the apparatus, what you may see is they were trained through chaining to make that particular choice. So what actually is being measured? Michaela considers the role that behavior analysts can have in designing better ways of assessing positive welfare conditions. We begin with the question, how do you assess emotions? In the five freedoms model, how do you assess if animals are free from fear and stress? In the positive welfare model, how do you assess if an animal is happy? In, in etiology looks from the outside and wild, etc., on the population base and trying to derive what an animal in captivity needs. And that maybe, you know, some of the things are probably good because, you know, providing more space that Horses can have more space to to roam around and being in a herd, being in a group, uh, having a lot of forage. So all these are informations that are very valuable. But as you said, others are maybe not that valuable. So you need to test those. And I think these tests are actually not really done. And that's that's what I want to bring in with the project that I wrote. (laughs) So because now the new thing is uh, positive animal welfare. So. We want to provide animals, uh, so not only with the conditions that they survive, so but we want them to thrive, so to have yes. good quality of life. The final fate may not change, but at least 
the time of their life they 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 enjoy. So they're not only surviving. So then the concept comes in of of well, emotions come in anyway because we we're assessing that they're free of fear, freedom of fear. So emotions are already there. But it's getting more complicated if if you want to assess whether an animal is happy or content. Yes. So how how do you assess that? And then the question comes up, do animals actually have emotions and have do they have the same emotions and do we have emotions? <laughs> yes. And what are emotions? <laughs> what are emotions? Right. And and if I say I'm happy, what does that mean? You know, exactly. Does, exactly. So uh, does my happy bear any resemblance to your happy? Yes, and there again we are tricked by our language. Yes. So happy, you know, there are in, in our culture there are sort of probably a, a great set of emotions, but in another culture, those set of emotions or what's labeled emotion may be totally or is totally different, as we know from science. So some would argue, I don't know, happiness is probably everywhere, but it may actually not be everywhere in everywhere in emotion. But okay, we need to communicate, so <laughs> it's good to have labels. So let's let's stick with with happy. And but but now the problem is again one: how do I assess the feelings? And the best uh, that they've come up with for now is uh, tests that they've borrowed from they. So I say the ethological approach borrowed from psychology, and I think here it, it starts getting murky. Because if you don't really know what to do and you start taking without being actually the experts, then I, I don't know if that's really a good idea. So what's assessed now, and I read the tests that are currently used for assessing emotions are, for example, a novel object test or an open field test. A novel object test is so imagine a flock of, of birds and all of a sudden you drop a plastic ball and then you measure the response you know how how so they will all be fluttering around and you you measure how long until they they are calm again for example that would be a novel object test or you take a calf out of its pen and you you know you push it into an open space and then you observe you know, how long does it take uh, to, I don't know, to go along the corridor or does it even go further or does it try to get back, etc. So this would be assessing their emotional state, which I think are really medieval tests. And, you know, if you listen to Joe Lang, what sophisticated experiments he's carrying out and then they are doing something like this, you know, dropping a ball and measuring until they're coming. I was like, really? <laughs> I think there, there are better ways of doing that. And then, so when it comes to positive animal welfare and assessing happiness, the only thing that comes up is a judgment bias test, which basically is assessing more what there's a differentiation between an emotion and a mood. So mood is more of a long-term feeling. And then you have the assessment of optimistic or pessimistic, and they use that to assess the, the condition, the living conditions of, of an animal. So the idea is you say, take it, you take a, a chicken out of, of the pen, for example, and you do a discrimination training. And 
So going to, I don't know, response A provides you with a treat and response B, no treat, or they may even use punishment. And they establish the cue so then the animal knows signal A produces that consequence, signal B produces the other consequence, and then they make the cue more ambiguous. So if it's, you know, maybe a tone, different tone, and then you make them closer yeah. to each other, so it's more difficult to differentiate between the two. And the assumption is that if it's ambiguous, an animal that has lived in poor conditions would expect the non-reward, whereas an animals that lived in better conditions would be optimistic and select the reward option. Mm. And that's the only test they, they, they are talking about now to assess whether an animal has good conditions or bad conditions. Also that I think it's rather medieval. Yeah, we need to revise the guidelines. So what I'm trying to do is to get behavior analysts in. So the last two years, I've been shaping my colleagues and my team leader to get curious about behavior analysis. So I'm sneaking it in here and there. And and I think at least my team leader, is he's, he's actually not an ethologist, he's an epidemiologist. He's quite intrigued, actually. For the others, I'm not sure. I think they're not against, they're just ignorant. They don't know what it is. But so it we had a project and I was not in the in the drafting team, but I was in the implementation team. And it included three workshops where welfare scientists were invited. And I got three behavior analysts in. <laughs> and they, they were quite uh, helpful. So they brought in some new new aspects and their so behavior analysis made it to the recommendations for future activities. So it's mentioned in several instances. And then, so now I wrote this project uh, on positive animal welfare, which is a collaboration between ethologists and behavior analysts to develop methodologies to assess whether an animal is, you know, happy or content or whatever. So what could be a test? So the, the my idea was to develop a really good methodology, a valid methodology for choice tests, because the ones that are normally done in, in these animal welfare papers are just Y mazes. So the animal goes either way, this way or that way. But they're not really describing how the animal is, for example, set back to the beginning, or they're not taking into account chaining. They're not taking into account the moment that they are feeding or the moment, you know, the door opens and especially chaining. I think I read some papers also with horses where they try to assess whether the horse prefers, I don't know, option A or option B. And they did a repetition and I read that and I said, my goodness, you are chaining. The horse is not telling you what it wants. You are chaining. Of course, the the, the horse will go for option B because you you trained it. Yes. <laughs> and that was one of the few where where even I could see it. But I'm sure if a behavior analyst looks at all of these protocols, they're going to find so many things where I say, look, you did not ask the animal. You were training the animal to give you that. that. So that's what I want to get out from, from this project. To so develop that- a methodology, how to do a choice test that is valid. And to do it first under experimental conditions and then see if we can take it out to the farm and get the ethologists in to see the effect of, you know, if you do an experiment this way or that way, how that influences the outcome. So they become aware. And then the description of what they see, the ethologists are very capable of doing that because that's their skill. So they can, how to describe behavior in a way that you can transfer to another person. 
they have that skill. So they are very good and, you know, measuring out exactly what the behavior looks out, giving it a name. And then this becomes codified in a way that even lay people can assess the same behavior and mark it. Yes, that it's it's there, it's not there, etc. So you're testing what an animal would choose given several options. Observe the animal, how it looks like under experiments, and then take it out to the farm and see, is there any way you can design an, a farm that contains all the elements that the animal would actually choose? Like, you know, giving a credit card and go to Ikea and buy whatever you want. <laughs> and then take that as your idea of what happy looks like. And can you then find that in a farm, you know, in an ideal farm or not? And I'm sure that is not, you know, a very good but it would be a start at least to, to see. And then from there you can develop on and make it better, but at least it would be a start. So, so anybody more. listening who wants to apply to the tender, it's open until May and you only need to have a collaborator in Europe who as a main tenderer and then anywhere anybody else can join. And that's May of 2024. Yes. Yes. Because plenty of time still to write a tender. Plenty of time, depending upon when people are, are listening to this. And if they're listening to it in, in June of 2024, then going, oh, if only I'd known. How frustrating. So, so one of the steps then in developing better guidelines for animal welfare involves first understanding more clearly what the current assessments are or are not showing us. So if you think you're doing a choice test but really, when you have a behavior analyst take a look at it and they say, well, you've just trained the animal to go over to this side of the enclosure instead of that side of the enclosure. And you've got this chain that is operating this. And that's really what's going on. And you go, oh, darn. It's not demonstrating what I thought it was demonstrating. So that's part of this process. And then the next step would be to say, well, this is what I would like to be able to assess. How do I do that? And I would like to be able to give this animal the choice, I don't know, a substrate that they would like to be on. How do I do that? Of course, it's going, it's, it's of, of course very complex because, you know, the choice may, you know, change from one day to the next or the animal is young and then after they want to play more, so they need more stuff maybe to play, yeah. play with, to interact with, and then they get older and they prefer, you know, a comfortable bed. So things will change. But if we don't have the methodology, you can't do anything. So I think the first step would be to have a methodology. And then we also need to have more of an understanding that when we use words such as happy, that these are metaphors. And it's, how do you measure happy? How do you define right. happy? And, right. and if that... you're trying to measure something that you can't even define, that creates a problem right there, right at the very beginning. You've got this stumbling block of what actually are you talking about when you say that you want your horses to be happy? You want your horses to be content. What is that? What does it look like? How do we measure it? And those of us who have horses, you know, we would like to think that we are able to assess that in our own horses. But there are certainly a lot of situations where you go into a barn and you think, oh, dear, this is this is really a 
hard environment for these horses. This is really stressful. And yet the people are very, think they're doing a good job for their horses. Yes, and then who's right? And then who's right? Exactly. Yeah. I think the methodology is probably the the easy the easy problem, like referring to that other philosopher saying easy and hard. The the harder problem is the underlying philosophy that is so vastly different. So how can you get them together when when it's you know the concept, the underlying concept is so totally different? And I don't know how this works because if you go and tell people <laughs> that you know emotions don't drive behavior. They are just, they are additional information that goes right. along with behavior and changes depending on the contingency, etc. If you have always, if for you, the motivation to do, to do a behavior is that driving force. So if you think because of frustration, you have the animal, say the horse, you know, biting its neighbor because, you know, it wants right. to eat and the food is not coming quick enough. So I'm going to beat my, eat my neighbor. And you explain that by frustration and you think you solved it when you have not solved it but then somebody comes along and tells you well it was not the frustration that drove the behavior it was you know the light <laughs> because there was a green light that signaled that the animal should now engage in aggressive behavior it's like what uh, it's going to be difficult but yeah i mean i made it <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did you make that leap you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> no, but because I, I know that this is something that you really wrestled with over time, and I think that's in, instructive. And I, I like the whole discussion of single subject design, and everyone mm -hmm. initially were going, no, no, this makes no sense at all. And uh, as a veterinarian, you would have been trained to look for the cause of cribbing, the source of cribbing yeah. inside the animal. I don't know. Also, what, what kept me going was the logical beauty of it. I think the more I read it was like, and, and the more I studied now about, about the experimental designs, I go like, wow, that is so clever. So clever. Yeah. And it's so easy to do. I mean, compared to all the designs I know, you know, where, in, where you randomized control studies and thousands of subjects. I mean, of course, you, you, they, they have their, their validity, of course, but depending on what you want to assess. But that you could do these small experiments, you know, in no time and so smart. And then identify yet another thing that is, you know, that you teach the animal to be successful. It's like, oh, I forgot the magazine training, you know. Well, okay, I have to put the magazine training in. Or if you're using concurrent schedules and... You've got to teach the rat to switch to the other behavior, to the other chain. And like, oh, I forgot to do that. So let's train that as well. <laughs> so yeah. this, I mean, yeah, you have to another sciences as well. You have, you know, you answer one question, you have, you have another thousand questions that come up. But the, the to me, the designs are really clever. Uh, I like that. I, I would love to, I already asked if there's not a short course on experimental design and behavior analysis, but apparently I have to do the full thing. <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to do that. But yeah, having the, the mind out of the way was like a relief. I was like, oh, thank goodness. I don't need that. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's clean. But I think it, it, many people find it upputting. They will not. I think many people have difficulties with that. What do you think, Dominique? 
Well, you know, I, I think when even maybe a way to reconcile it, and I would probably need to go back. Remember Alex, Joe Lang sent us an article by James Holland about the fact too that Skinner was not ignoring or sweeping emotions and private events under the rug. But of course, we know that eventually he was explaining behavior through the interaction with environment. And it was because he was including emotion in his analysis that he was called a radical behaviorist because previous behaviorists were not including emotions. But still, in the end, he was explaining behaviors not by emotions, but by the environment. But he was including it in his analysis. But I'd have to go back to this article. You don't need to ignore it and say, it, the fact that you take the private events into account does not invalidate the analysis that behavior is caused by environment. No, sure. But the emotions are a part, of, part of the process mm -hmm. or the feelings. I, I think I prefer the term feeling. They're yeah. part of the process. They are they are about they're giving additional information or they make sense of things. So they are part of it, but they are not driving the behavior. Right. But I remember I enjoyed this article a lot. Hmm. And it did discuss animals and consciousness. But I have maybe before the end of the podcast I can find it. Remember we're not negating, we're not saying that emotions do not exist. And that in fact, I think quite the the opposite of that. And we can observe suffering in others. You know, I can observe suffering in humans. I can observe suffering in animals. And But the animal welfare, it's not a simple, straightforward analysis. There was a, when you, when you start looking at, again, some of the, the sensory perception of different species and that uh, book that I heard to a couple times, The uh, World by Ed Jung, you can take a, a naked mole rat and expose the naked mole rat to hydrochloric acid that we would find extremely painful. And they don't react to it at all. That apparently through whatever evolutionary process has occurred, the, the acid does not affect them in the same way that it would affect us. You can put them on like a, a hot plate and they will just sit there and sit there and sit there and sit there so that their heat tolerance, their cold tolerance is completely different from ours. So when you're trying to assess animal welfare, you, you have to take into account what is this particular species slash individual? How do they perceive the world? Do they perceive heat in the same way? Do they perceive cold in the same way? And all of that becomes complicated. And then, and that's, we can measure that to a certain extent. And then you start getting into suffering. Well, what is suffering? How do we measure that? To how, how much suffering is acceptable? When you drop a lobster 
into boiling water. How much suffering is that lobster experiencing? And is that acceptable or not? Or even, um, or even how many lobsters you put in a grocery store aquarium, you know, when they pile. I remember life. once I went to my grocery store because there was a, I don't know how you call them in English, like the, the big water aquarium, I call them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had like about, I don't know, 10 lobster, one over the other throughout the aquarium. And so I went to the, um, the manager and I said, you know, your lobsters, they're suffering. <laughs> in in the water and he must have thought she's a really crazy woman this one you, I don't I don't think a lot of people have gone to him to express their distress about lobster suffering but he said well you know in the other store you may not see all these lobsters because it's even worse they're keeping them in the fridge in the back all piled up and so at least we're putting them in water. So for him, he was doing a really good job of lobster welfare. And, you know, the week after that, I thought, mm, I wonder if my comment will have had any impact. And basically he thought, he must have thought I was a crazy woman yeah. because there was no difference. And there were still as many lobster piled up in the, what do you call the tank, I guess. In the called. tank, yeah. Yeah. But it could be even more subtle. I mean, if you think about hunger, mm. when does hunger start? So hunger, again, is perception. So how, for example, we define prolonged hunger as a welfare consequence, meaning it's the effect of a measure taken you know, by the farmer. Say they are not giving the animal to eat before they are transported to slaughter, for example. Mm. And how much hunger is acceptable? When does the animal start feeling hungry? We don't know because it's a perception. It's a it's a feeling. So how can you measure hunger? So what can you you can measure physiological indicators? So you can measure I don't know blood glucose or other measures. Um, but it doesn't tell you if the animal feels hungry and how hungry is okay. Yes. Yeah. So even that is really basic, but it's already a problem. Well, and, and like you said, you know, there's a whole cultural heritage, you know, the social acceptability of one thing versus another thing. I was just writing to Alex this week because I have to give my horse cough medicine and he doesn't like the taste of it. And, you know, normally in the horse world, what you hear is that you just shove it in his mouth and be done with it. That's it, you know. But I started, well, first of all, before my the vet left, I was already starting to do some little exercises to ask him questions about, you know, what he taught of the medicine. And later I called the clinic to find out, I was happy to find, because he hates the strawberry flavor of this <laughs> medicine and you know i discovered and i was very happy to discover that there are many flavors there's butterscotch and peppermint and no flavor and so i'm going to do some training with with these different flavors to try and gradually introduce them in a cooperative way but you know i i ended my email to annex 
I mean, I've been doing this for many, many years and I have all, you know, the reinforcement history of my own training and of other people's training that I've seen. I have educated myself a lot about all the science behind it. And still with all this background, I felt a little bit, you know, I said to Alex, I still felt a little bit like a Martian on planet Earth because I was asking the clinic about these things. And the vet kind of said, well, you know, usually horses, they'll take it. I know he'll take it. I force him to take it, but that's not what I want. And I feel like I'm still different from the rest of the horse world. You know, I'm different because I'm looking for another way of doing this that is more collaborative and obviously is not yet very well spread out because people just shove medicine in their horse's mouth and that's the way to do it. And it looks silly to them not to do it like that. And you feel that, you know, you feel that you're kind of, they, they're looking at you, you're aware, <laughs> you're conscious that they're looking at you like, oh, she's weird, this girl, you know, why don't you just give it to him? And yet there must, there is a sea change occurring if, Michaela, you and, and your colleagues are being asked to look at the guidelines for animal welfare. Yes. Because why, why, why does that and even matter? something else. I think, too, that in a way, they're kind of interested. You know, they may want you to fail because that will justify all the times that they've shoved the medicine into their horse's mouth. But at the same time, I think part of them wants this to be possible. And so they're kind of looking at you from the corner of the eye. And if you succeed, it opens up a door for everyone. You do have the burden of succeeding though. Yeah. But I think there's an interest. So what is prompting the EU to look at the animal welfare guidelines? What's pushing that? Well, it's not, they're not. So we're, we are, so the positive welfare was my initiative. Uh, okay. it's, it is, it is a buzzword in the field. And I guess it's pushed by public perception. So um, NGOs, animal welfare organizations saying that, you know, we, it's not acceptable to limit ourselves to avoiding uh, negatives. We want the animals to have a good life. That is also pushing the whole revision of the legislation, etc. The guidance on how to assess welfare, our last one was 2012. And when I read it, I had to read it because I was taking over the welfare of laying hands and had to, you know, I was needed to learn all these welfare assessments. I read it and I, I didn't understand the word. <laughs> also because our in-house guidelines are not using the terminology that is used in the in the publications. They've developed their own and what that made it really, so what we're using is what I said, the animal-based measures, management-based measures, resource-based measures. The impact on the animal is um, a welfare consequence. So say, say prolonged hunger is a welfare consequence. Or, so that could be actually positive or negative, but all our assessments talk only about negatives. And actually, that was the first time I asked the question. I say, well, 
in our guideline, we're saying a welfare consequence could be both negative and positive. Why are we only assessing negatives? That was the first time I said, hmm. <laughs> That's a bit weird. And and then I, together with some other things, I, I said, look, I think we have to revise this guidance because it's, it doesn't, I think it's not logical. It, it, it uses terminology that's not generally used. And it's also not logical before because sometimes, for example, stress, if you, stress could be a welfare consequence saying, so it's the result of bad conditions. But then it's also used to measure bad conditions. Said so that doesn't make sense. It should be one or the other. Mm. But and then actually in the document that I was coordinating, they then then they said that actually. So group stress in particular can be an outcome and it can be a measure. So you're not solving the problem, but I had to because I was new, so I didn't, I didn't I, say anything. Yeah. But it, so all of these clues, basically, I told my team leaders that, mm, I don't know, I think we have to revise that. And he totally agrees. He said, yeah, this is, I mean, it's from 2012. So yes, we should revise it. But the revision of the legislation uh, initiating this all these mandates, that is based on pressure from the citizen, European citizens. Actually, there's an initi initiative that collected signatures. And they collected 1.5 million signatures and above 1 million, the European Commission has to act. And it was about, it's called end the cage age. So for all animals, farm animals, that they are no longer kept in, in, in cage, cages. So that uh, refers, you know, for the laying hens are still in cages, uh, calves are in cages, rabbits are in cages, ducks are in cages, etc. So the initiative was to to stop all the cages and all our recommendations actually say yes we should stop cages no more cages pigs you know the yes breeding pigs are in these horrible crates so the recommendations are to stop using them but the commission so, so that was so i'm i'm always telling so, people so there, I, were, there were 1.5 million martians to use yeah. dominique's who pushed pushing this. that yes yes okay yeah, they pushed it and now they're really angry because it's not yet implemented so by the end of this year uh, the commission was supposed to provide a draft legislation. Uh, they have not managed to negotiate successfully with the industry. So that is the, pro the producers, the farmers, or uh, whatever reason, I don't know. But they have presented a draft for transport. So transport of animals is going to be revised so that legislation is coming. Includes also horses, all types of animals. So there will be better legislation for to protect animals during life transport. And for the other one, we are all very disappointed because we've delivered all these reports and they have not moved yet. But I, I don't think it's off the table because the citizens are still there. <laughs> and another initiative came also that is to, to, to ban fur farming. So we received that mandate this month. So it's brand new. And that is that was also a petition. They also collected signatures. So it's, you know, for the Europeans listening to this podcast, European Citizen Initiative, you know, I think there's also one on horses, actually. So when the focus shifts to horses, what do you hope will emerge from that? What do you think will emerge from that? Well, we don't have legislation for horses. There's none. There's none. So, so there's only national, but there's no EU legislation. So there are no guidelines at all for 
how horses? National, yes, but not EU. Okay. So if we have legislation... When you say national, you mean national where? Member states. So Germany yeah. may have, France may have, but not EU-wide. Mm -hmm. So when, when that focus gets turned to horses, if lane hens and rabbits should be cage-free, does that mean no more stalls for horses? I hope so. It would certainly be in the recommendation. <laughs> that That's a big one. <laughs> that is a big one. Oh, that would be a big change. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's what we put in the in the recommendation does not mean that it's implemented in legislation because they have to negotiate with all parties. Sometimes the alternative to stalls can be worse than stalls. You know, from what I've seen on at various farms, so we have to be careful. What exactly? You have to be yeah. careful what you wish for. That expression, be careful what you wish for, you may get it. Yeah, it's, it's it, because it is complicated, as you've said. Yeah. It is yeah. complicated. So, where do you sit now in terms of sorting out the ethologists, the behaviorists? <laughs> I'm sitting in the middle. What what do I? How do you how do you sort all of this? How do you talk to various individuals from different backgrounds? How do you get along with everybody? So when you're talking to uh, an ethologist, yeah, I I keep to my colleagues. I'm not I'm not challenging our experts because they're invited because they're experts on their right. field. So I mean I would not challenge them. That that doesn't make sense. So I think to bring it the the idea into into our team is is for me to, the way to go. And then. When, you know, when we are creating new working groups, that means inviting experts, I will always push for inviting a behavior analyst. The problem is we don't have any. Yeah. <laughs> we cannot invite people from New Zealand or the US. And so we have to invite, I mean, ideally, we should get somebody. somebody European. European first, yes, because we have meetings here and they have to travel so. Uh, of course, we can. If it is considered important enough, we also get somebody from outside EU. But I doubt that including a behavior analyst would be considered important enough to fly somebody in from New Zealand or the US where they are. Mm -hmm. But basically, I think what we need to build is a, a new bunch of behavior analysts growing in here. Europe. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so, th so that's really. So somebody who is of an age where they're wondering, what should I, what field of study should I go into as I'm thinking about university study? If they have an interest, it would be behavioral analysis if you live in Europe. Yeah, and the best would be do, you know, a combination with animal science. So there are a few. I mean, there are, there are some, I know a couple of people who, who did that. So they studied animal sciences and then did additionally behavior analysis on top. But they're not enough, so we need more. So if you do that combination, I think that could be really a fun field. So if you are an animal person, instead of doing biology, you know, do or do your undergrad in biology or and then on top of that behavior analysis. I'm not saying it's a career path, though I'm not sure, but that's I I'm we would I will give you a job. <laughs> I found the article, uh, Alex, and it's easy to Google. 
So this article was suggested to us by Joe Lang, and it's called Radical Behaviorism and Consciousness by James Holland. He's, he seems to be professor, or was, I don't know anymore, but at the University of Pittsburgh. And mm -hmm. he wrote, this chapter is a version of my paper presented at the symposium, The Nature of Consciousness at the American Psychological Association Convention in Toronto in 1978. And it's interesting because, so he reports back on uh, one of the things on Skinner's position saying that Skinner was saying that private events were worthy of investigation, but they were not, they could not be used to explain public behavior. He would just analyze them the same way, whether they were private events or public behavior, he would use the same kind of function to the environment. So I, I like that article. I thought it was very, very interesting. And it, yeah, so I, I like the, uh, I'll tell you why I liked it. Because, you know, I had heard before the idea that we knew that emotions and private events existed, but they were kind of out of our realm because we couldn't measure them. So, you know, I kind of bought that argument before, but I like this one because it allowed me to reunite the two to kind of say, okay, I don't have to sweep private events under the rug. Now I can include them in the, because that's what radical behaviorism was. So I can, because just like you, Michaela, I really like the logic part of behaviorism. It just helps me so much to, and I find it very empowering because, you know, once you see that the environment explains behavior, you can start changing things in the environment. So I find it really empowering and clear and logical. But I like the idea that I could even include private events in, in my thinking. And this article helped me with that. So, and it's easy to find. I just Googled it and it was yep. the first thing that came up, so. If anyone's interested in deepening it a little bit more, and it's not a very long, complicated read, so <laughs> it's a good read. Good. So at the end of the day, can I still say that animals are intelligent and have a rich emotional life, and we need to take that into consideration in our training choices? Of course, that's a, that's a <laughs> we fair... didn't discuss in, we didn't discuss intelligence. <laughs> but that's a different topic, but of course they're intelligent, yes, yeah. and emotional definitely. It's it's yes, nobody denied feelings or emotions. It's just our understanding of emotions we have to adjust. Well, they they, they call it the heart problem, I think, huh? I've right, the heart the problem. The mind and the consciousness they call it right. The heart problem. It's the heart problem. Yes, it's for yes. a good reason they call it the heart problem. Yes. And that we very much need to take that into consideration in our training choices. And that when we say that horses do not feel pain the way we do, well, I don't know if you, Michaela, feel pain the way I feel pain. Um, we don't. Of course we don't. That's, you know, um, yes. so that's a meaningless statement. Um, and the argument is not about humans being superior humans doing that or an animals doing that it's the question applies to all right yes it's not uh, about 
our our feelings are not superior to an animal's feeling. We have to reconsider our understanding of feelings altogether, no matter which species, yes. whether it's yes. human or non-human animals, it's the same. Very true. Yes. For us, the, com the complication for us is language, which guides us or misguides us because we think we understand something when in fact we just put words on it and we think that we understood it, but we did not. We just explained it to ourselves so we, we feel yes. good. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, we, we wrapped it up in a metaphor that we no longer question. And, you know, circling back to the beginning where I mentioned Kay Lawrence, who sees you know, days of the week as colors, and that that has led her to a very uh, different perception of the, of the world. And I suspect that Kay growing up was constantly being faced with but that's not that's not what I'm experiencing and where she was constantly challenging what other people were seeing and she's so good at challenging these statements of of saying you know what do, what does that mean really mean and that's I think what we need to remember in our training is we need to keep in mind that when we are talking about the training choices and what, you know, well, the horse doesn't really feel the, he doesn't really feel the spurs as something painful. You know, how do we know what he feels? We don't know. And I think we need to keep that always, always in mind that the real study of one is how we individual, how, how I perceive the world is not necessarily mirrored in how you perceive the world so it's complicated <laughs> and and at the end of the day what i think unites those certainly unites us is that we actually do care that our horses live in a positive welfare experience and how we how we create that how we define that is based on on our experiences and what we have available to us. And I do not think that it's the absence of stereotypic behavior that defines good welfare. Mm. And vice versa, it's not that the presence of stereotypic behavior equals bad welfare. Which that too. So that which, means a little so <laughs> well because um I read that a lot and it drives me crazy that uh, for the horse welfare, for example, the suggestion of what an animal-based indicator would be for poor welfare would be the presence of abnormal behavior. And then, mm. you know, okay, what's abnormal behavior? And that's one of the other clashes where, you know, in behavior analysis, there is no abnormal behavior because every behavior it's has functional. a reason. Right. There's right. a reason why an animal behaves in a certain way, whereas in the welfare assessments, they're very often, probably for lack of better way of measuring, saying abnormal behavior as an indicator. And one of the abnormal abnormalities would be stereotypical behavior. And, you know, <laughs> obviously thinking of, of Blondie, how she was, you know, if she's cribbing under those conditions, you would say, yeah, sure, she was, you know, in a tiny little room, 
stable, not getting out, harsh treatment. Of course, she's gripping. But, but now she's anymore. in a very good environment. Everything yeah. that you know, and yeah. you know, and under you know certain conditions. Um, if I put the hay in the hay net, she would crib on the hay net. So if someone came, they would say she's not in good condition, where she's in super good conditions. But, yes. Yeah. And then I would say, like, you know, I don't accept that anymore. And that's something that I would even say to the experts. I say, look, I do not think that the presence of stereotypic behavior or repetitive behavior is an indicator of poor welfare. I don't accept that. Yeah. And and usually the, the solutions you read for that, for, you know, in, in particular cribbing, you know, it doesn't work. You know, yeah, you can yeah. do everything that they say you should be doing and the horse will crib because now it's in his repertoire to crib. Exactly. But then that is not an indicator for anything, mm -hmm. right? So if the behavior occurs in the presence or in the absence of certain conditions, then it's not an indicator of anything. So you're not measuring the, you cannot provide a judgment about the, conditions the horses lives in by measuring this type of behavior. It's not a reliable, reliable indicator, but often that's the only one they have okay. as a behavior indicator. Because yes, of course, in many, in many instances where if you go to a racing stable and the horses are all weaving, mm. it's very easy to say, but you're explaining the behavior after the fact, mm. which is also a difference because in behavior oh, analysis or experimental analysis of behavior, you would experiment and then see what's the effect on behavior as an outcome. Whereas if you go the other way, you're observing and then you're telling your story after the fact. And you say that it's because the chicken was frustrated that it pecked the other chicken. So how do you know? <laughs> you came in the middle of the story. You don't know. And that's that's another big difference that, that behavior is explained after the fact. And even for us, you know, who know that behavior has function, sometimes it's really difficult to find a function. And so, you know, we're aware of all this and sometimes we cannot find it. So, you know, for someone who's not even aware of all, the, all of this. You know, for the, yeah. for to make life easier, you know, of, you probably can take shortcuts and it doesn't really matter. But if you are doing a scientific assessment and you really need to know what this behavior means, you, I mean, you'd have to test it. You cannot just come up with whatever comes to mind because only because yeah. it's accepted by everybody doesn't mean that it's correct. Yeah. The, the horse is biting because he's aggressive. The chicken is pecking because these are aggressive birds it means nothing. And yet those statements are really common. So, yeah, but it comes again from this idea that, that emotions drive behavior. So yes. there must be some anger for this aggressive behavior to come out. So yeah. it's only logical that this explanation is coming. But if you come from the other way around saying, you know, what was in the environment uh, that the behavior learned to, to carry out that behavior and what was the consequence of it and why is it occurring again? It's a totally different way of totally analyzing different. it. Yes. Yeah. And then there's the whole idea of the nonlinear where the, the, the express behavior as its own consequence. Should sure, what happened to the bird if it would not show that behavior? Mm. Yes. Yes. So you have you have quite the road ahead of you in terms of bringing 
the behavioral analysis into this. Yeah, let's see. And so we'll get Joe to come in, in March, hopefully. So it looks it looks good. So I guess he will get him to give a presentation to, I think, the whole organization. And we'll, we'll think, I have to think about what would be a good and topic. What? Yeah, yeah. I'll have to think. I, I, I told him. He asked me, you know, what, what should I? And I said, I don't care. You, they just have to be amazed <laughs> and want to know more. <laughs> so yes, and then probably we'll have some more detailed discussion with my colleagues, and then we can discuss about, you know, for example, you know, emotions and what drives behavior, and I don't know. We'll have to think. Choice experiments. So much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but basically, I, I want them to be interested. That's that's all. So, and I'm sure he can he can tell so many stories. They will be intrigued. Yes, yes, yeah. He's a great storyteller. Yeah. So you will have to keep us posted uh, on all of this, and we'll let people scratch their heads a little bit in terms of what we've covered, and and see if any of it makes sense, and whether it ties some threads together from previous discussions and at some point in the not too distant it'd be great to have you come back and we can talk about the Feldenkrais work as it relates to riding and the training and all of those good things but this has been a really useful conversation yeah and, so, and it's important work so it is important work yeah, and it's important work because it has a lot of impact you know we're all trying to do our little thing each one of us but you know this has a very widespread impact so it's important work and it's good to hear that if you get enough martians together <laughs> they can they can have an impact mm, so they can they so can. we just have to keep celebrating being martians <laughs> yes we have to keep being martians and sending those ripples out there and being comfortable being yeah, martians exactly yes <laughs> that's, that's yes. the hard part huh? that's the part where i think you know that's where i felt after all these years the example i was doing before that i reached a level of comfort in being different that i had reached a level where i felt legitimate in my way of approaching it mm. and that that takes, you know, information, time, I think. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, Michaela, thank you enormously. And all the, the best in getting the behavioral analysis into these discussions, because that is important and it will make a difference. So, thank you enormously. You're very welcome. I don't need to add very much here except to say to all the other Martians listening to this, Happy New Year. Let's celebrate being different in order to create a happier life for all the animals under our care. And remember, the Clicker Expo Live is January 26th through 28, 2024. That's a great place for Martians to, to gather, or I should say, for Clicker trainers to gather and to celebrate our positive welfare training choices. We've been talking a lot about emotions in this series with Michaela. In my expo presentation, I'll be talking about fear, but not in the way you might expect. If you work with horses, you are taking on risk, if for no other reason than horses are big and we ride them. Often riders are taught to suppress their fear. If you fall off, 
what are you told? Get back on your horse. That attitude is so prevalent in the horse world. The phrase has entered into popular culture. People who have never been near a horse in their entire life are told after a mishap to get back on their horse. In this program, I look at how this dismissal and suppression of fear affects attitudes towards horses and it affects our training choices. So many training choices and their often painful consequences come directly from a denial of fear. In this program, I'm going to be turning things around. Instead of denying your fear, I look at what happens when you embrace it. So go to clickertraining.com to learn more about my presentation and the entire expo program. It's a great event. Even more than the expo, though, what I want to share with you is the publication of my new book. I'm going to be publishing the second in the series of the Kenyan Bear books. The title is Edgar, the Bear Who Wanted to Be Real. And I'll be telling you more about the book and how you can get it next time. How's that for a tease? So until then, train well and have fun with your horses. <laughs>